the more prepared and the more you know your instrument or your craft, the more free you are to really be in the moment and create something special in that moment. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, where we have conversations with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, athletes, best-selling authors who are using their impact moment to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. Each week, our guest is part of a series such as Mindset, Leadership, Purpose, and we just concluded an incredibly powerful series about developing a warrior's heart. Now, this series that you're listening to now is about the creative mindset. I am particularly excited about this series because there is a lot that we can learn about ourselves and our journey as entrepreneurs by studying and observing those with unique creative abilities, such as some of the guests you will hear from in the next few weeks. What lessons can we learn from creatives? That might be a question you're asking yourself. Well, how about the importance of improvisation or playing outside the lines or defining the value that you create in the world or seeing opportunities where others see mistakes or failure? There is a tremendous amount that we can learn from those with unique creative abilities, such as musicians, artists, and authors. Now, enough about the series. Let's learn a little bit more about this week's guest in the Creative Mindset series. I am thrilled to kick the Creative Mindset series off with a friend of mine, an incredibly talented musician who I grew up with and went to school with. Rebecca Jackson grew up in a family of self-taught artists with diverse backgrounds in the intersection of Midwestern fiddle jams and South Korean karaoke. Music has given Rebecca a lot over the years, and now she is using music as a tool to give back as a co-founder of an organization called Sound Impact, which is a collective of musicians dedicated to serving communities and igniting positive change in the U.S. and abroad through live performances, educational programs, and creative collaborations. Learning to play music taught Rebecca many valuable lessons as a child, all of which helped her get to where she is today. Humility, the fact that you're never going to stop growing and we always have something to learn. Teamwork, that we are not the only voice in the choral and that you have to learn to play well together to create a collective, beautiful sound. Perseverance, because some days are tough and you just have to keep going and trust the process. Communication, learning to have stage presence, teaches both verbal and nonverbal communication skills, as well as the importance of mentorship. And she had an incredibly powerful mentor, which you will hear more about in this episode. So bust out your pens and paper, don't be a podcast junkie, and brace for impact. Rebecca Jackson, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I'm very excited to have you. You are uh, an incredibly talented individual. We've known each other not super well, but from from our, our high school days. Mm-hmm. And it's been amazing to watch what you've created and where you've gone and what you're doing in your life and through music. And so I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You are very welcome. So you come from what I would consider a a very talented family. Uh, Your dad was a physician. Your sister was also a musician, if I recall correctly, from our high school talent show days. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I don't know about your mom. I want to ask some questions about your mom. but, But what was it like growing up in the Jackson family? 
Oh, wow. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> we like to ask big questions. Right. Yeah. No, it was, it was fantastic. I, I would say my father was the hardworking spiritual pillar of the family. And my mom was the nuts and bolts really with my sister and me, so devoted and dedicated to every minute of our day. Yeah. Hmm. In a nutshell. That's awesome. Does that work? Yeah, that works. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So your your mom, she stayed at home basically. She yes, yeah. she did. She she was actually a piano teacher. She she went through a few professions. She was a nurse and both of my parents speak many languages. And so my mom was an English teacher as well. And then she discovered the Suzuki method of teaching. And she had grown up studying piano and um, became a very good uh, beginning piano teacher. Yeah, right. So I'm guessing that you get the musical gene from your mom? Yeah, you know, I think it's really both sides. Both sides were musically inclined. The Jackson side of the family, uh, all self-taught, grew up. My father spent the very first part of his life in Missouri. So the tradition of old country style fiddling uh, is very prominent in the Jackson family. I remember going to jam sessions with my dad's father and my mom, my grandmother sitting and crocheting. A lot of the women were doing that. Yeah. So that, that side also were big music lover, lovers, just a different kind of music. And my mother, growing up in South Korea, music is a, just a part of every child's education. Mm -hmm. So she actually never pushed my sister and me to go into music necessarily. She just, that was part of the deal mm -hmm. and part of oh, interesting. education. You know, as we were talking before we hit the record button, I, I spent some time in Korea as a kid in Daegu, Korea, in a military base uh, when I was age six through eight. And I have incredibly fond memories of both the, the the country, the people, and and the overall culture. And I can and how throughout that entire culture, music is weaved in and out of that entire culture. And, and it so it's good to see that your mom kind of carried that forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well and also the the um tradition of, I don't know what it always is, is the Koreans want to go out and sing karaoke after every party. <laughs> that is true, and not necessarily good karaoke either. Um, so where where was your mom born in Korea? She was, well, you know, she grew up in Busan. I'm not sure if that's where oh, she was born, but no I'm pretty way. I'm pretty sure she was born there. Well. My nickname is the Pusan Kid. Really? Yes. Well, that's cool. The reason is and, and is because we lived in Daegu, which is an army base. We lived on an American military base. And I was on a baseball team, American military baseball team as a kid. And the nearest team that we could play was in Busan. And so we had to drive. And I think it was like three hours or something to get there. And I loved baseball and I loved playing as a kid. And so the story goes is that one morning at 4.45 a.m., mm -hmm. I was at my parents' bedside, dressed in my uniform, ball and mitt in hand, going thwack, thwack, throwing the ball on my, on my mitt, saying, let's go, I'm ready to go. And we didn't have to leave for like you know two or three more hours. So from that moment on, my parents have called me the Pusan kid. Oh, that's so sweet. That's sweet. <laughs> Little tangential story there. But family <laughs> is so important. We, I come from a musical family. I love music. It's Music is an incredibly powerful thing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that 
in a little bit. One of my questions was going to be about you and your sister growing up. Did she also play the violin or she played the the cello or well that yeah so she she and I studied violin and the funny thing is people say well ask my mother why didn't you have them play piano and we we did learn basic keyboard skills from my mom but she loved the idea that if you play violin or an instrument other than the piano you can go on vacations and take your instrument. Mm. You don't have to depend on the instrument to be provided for you. So that she, I remember her saying that that was her, her reasoning for having a study. A, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So because of the whole idea of perfecting your discipline, basically, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and really, with my mother, she is a typical. I, I think a lot of people think the Asian. The Asian mother, tiger mom stereotype, and and it, it it is I think based on a lot of what really does go on, especially when you go to the top music conservatories. Korean mothers are very involved, or Asian mothers in general. But my my mother never, it it wasn't so much about like as I said, pushing us into the music world with any expectation. She really thought music teaches so many very valuable life lessons to a child. And so when we were studying music, it was never lock us in a practice room for five hours a day. It was she monitored our practicing. And even if it was only five minutes, it was daily, but it was consistent and it was perfect practice. It mm -hmm. was not just aimless. So she, she was very good about that. And I think that's really helped me throughout my mm -hmm. career. So let's elaborate a little bit on some of the life lessons that you think yeah. music not only has taught you, mm -hmm. but also can teach others. Well, I think one of my favorite attributes of any human being is humility, because that shows that you never stop growing. You always have something to learn, and it makes you a more open, warm, loving person contributing to society. And... I think humility is definitely something you learn as a musician <laughs> because you know, routinely I go and play for kids and the question is, how long did it take for you to be able to play your instrument well? And always, whether it's me or any other musician I'm playing these outreach shows with, the response is always the same. It hasn't stopped. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, it humbles us every day, and it's a, it's that journey that is never ending, of constantly learning and growing. Other lessons, definitely, teamwork, playing in a youth orchestra or in chamber music. That is that you're not the only voice, and you have to learn to work together to create a collective beautiful sound. Perseverance because some days are rough and you just got to keep on going and trust the process and your teacher. And hopefully you're also guided by supportive family members. Stage presence and also just communication skills in a sense when you're... Nonverbal communication skills. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then just kind of uh, I think it's a beautiful thing, the relationship between teacher and student mm -hmm. and, and realizing, again, that it, discovering things on your own, but also realizing 
that there are people that have experience and learn more than you that you can always learn from. And, and hopefully that carries on throughout mm, the rest of life. Powerful. And, and you just said so much there like <laughs> about community and process and presence and, you know, hu- humility. I mean, all of these things. And we're going to talk more about all of those things, incidentally, uh, which is kind of cool that, that you mentioned that. But was there someone early in your life, could be a family member, could be a non-family member, who not only believed in your skills and abilities, but believed in you and your potential? Well, I really think it, ha- it has to be my parents. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I was a very awkward child. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't mean to make everyone out there listening feel sorry for me, but I didn't really fit in so well. And uh-huh. actually, in a sense, music helped give me a voice and, and, despite the fact that I was a bit of a loner, um, shall we say, and uh, I spent a lot of time, I loved studying and uh, I didn't like practicing so much, but I did always enjoy performing for others. So it was that delayed gratification that kept me going and also my mom's uh, disciplined (laughs) voice in the background. But yeah, no, my parents really were very instrumental, I think, and and they still are. They're just, I cannot say enough kind things about my family. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've met your dad on several occasions and collaborated with him on different community projects, but I've never really known him deeply. But in my experiences with him in particular, I've always seen him to be an incredibly generous and humble man, a very accomplished physician, and never a braggart. But I, I want to if we could tease out the the childhood thing again about, about being awkward, what was it in particular? Did you feel like you didn't fit in because you were interested in in the arts and, and other people were interested in like Pokemon? Or, or like, <laughs> what, what was it? You know, I don't really know. I think I I was just one of those kids that, well, I guess one thing is I, I always felt comfortable, most comfortable hanging out. I loved spending time with my family and and their friends. So mm-hmm. I've I've always been I've always gravitated and still gravitate towards people who are much older than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I get older, <laughs> maybe I'll <laughs> be closer to the, the older age. Anyway, but yeah, I, maybe it was because of that. I just wasn't super drawn to to. Th- the things going on amongst my peers mm-hmm. and I wanted to fit in. I I wanted to have, it was, it was not fun not to be kind of accepted. And I think also actually once I was studying violin, it was another thing that kind of ostracized me from mm-hmm. my peers in, a, in the beginning before I experienced music festival um, in upstate New York, which completely changed my perspective and gave me the courage to decide other people love music and it's okay and um, gave me the courage to pursue music as my life career and passion. Hmm. But yeah, uh, when, at Monta Vista, my sister and I in a middle school and high school were the only string players in the entire middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it was just another thing that made me feel a little bit like an outsider. Yeah. Well, I can say that having been one of those people sitting in the chairs watching you and Elizabeth play, because uh, I was also in the in the talent show, I would sing. But 
I was just blown away. And I think as a kid, I didn't necessarily have the ability to process or recognize greatness or potential. But like the two of you are really amazing, creative people. And I think that even if you weren't aware of it then, you had a gift in that, not not just musically speaking, but you had a gift in the sense that you already at a young age had encountered your potential and maybe you yourself didn't even know how to process it at that point. And so you gravitated toward, you know, an, an older crowd who is a little bit more mature and you could feel more comfortable with and, and feel safe with. But I just remember watching you guys and being like, oh my gosh, they're both going to do incredible things, mm-hmm. which you have, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you are doing. And and we're going to talk a little bit more about sound impact and some of those things, playing in front of the Spanish, in the, at the Spanish embassy and all these other places in a little bit. I'm curious about the violin. There's always like a story about the violin and you hear these very romantic things like I was walking in an antique shop and I found this violin that was, you know, you know, a hidden treasure. You didn't find yours in a, in a in an antique shop. Did your violin pick you or did you pick your violin? Well, so I I would have to back up a little bit because um, it, it's a, one of those tragedy turned into a nice <laughs> ending stories. I played for most of my upbringing on a local maker's instrument. Uh, we were in Crescent City, California before moving to Santa Cruz in 1993. And it... it served me well, but I I needed a better instrument. And so just before taking auditions to get into music conservatory, my mom joined me in, in searching for a better instrument. And I actually, after two years, we finally settled on this instrument. Instruments, especially stringed instruments, can be very expensive. So my parents took money out on loan. And before she was had the insurance papers mailed in, the violin got stolen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So and this was just before my my school audition. I believe I have to I may be remembering this a little bit incorrectly, the timing of it. But anyway, it was very tragic. It was it was extremely tragic. So it's it's almost this strange dream I had, but the, the nice ending of the story was one of my childhood teachers who was uh, getting much older and didn't use this one instrument. He sold uh, an instrument to me at the price he bought it 
30 years ago. So it was a very reasonable price. Anyway, so that helped me get into Juilliard. I was so thankful. And then uh, when I was doing grad school, I ended up becoming Miss Santa Cruz, which is a total... Actually, I do remember that. It's a strange chapter of my life, a part of grad school. Anyway, they provided me with enough scholarship money, my career, obviously, music and violin playing. So the current instrument that I have is was in someone's closet, and um, I was able to purchase it with, with the scholarship money I won from Miss Santa Cruz. How did you know it was the violin? Well, I think our journey, finding the right voice to to spend so many hours a day practicing and and creating pretty sounds out of, it's kind of ongoing. It's not going to, I don't think, I'm actually in the process of looking for a new instrument. This one has been with me for about 12 years now, and I love the sweet sound. For me, what spoke to me when I first played it, the rich, dark colors, especially on the low strings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Sorry, awesome. I'm like I'm like talking in circles. No, no, you're I'm doing awesome. No, you're doing awesome. This is this is so great because okay. this is this is real and authentic. And okay. there's there's a moment, like I mean, because you're like you're when you play. When I watch you play, or or any like string uh, soloist play, they're creating a an intimate moment. There ha- there's a relationship between the musician and their instrument that is then producing this fruit. Mm-hmm. And just like in any relationship, there's got to be a connection, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's it, it's totally appropriate that you have these deep, rich tones that draw you to this instrument, you know, because obviously if something's high and squeaky, it's, gonna, it's not going to, it's not going to speak to you and it's going to communicate an entirely different message. And, mm-hmm. and really the way I look at things is that an instrument is really an extension of the player's soul. Absolutely. You know, I mean, and it's it's beautiful. I mean, we just did a Facebook Live right before recording this, and it's just incredible to 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 watch you play because there's an emotion and a feeling, and it's not just reading sheet music, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you don't. I would imagine that you can pretty much play anything without sheet music. You have it there, but you 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 don't need it, and and it's the fact that you don't need it that frees you to create this deep, rich emotion. Is that true? Yeah, I I yes, I would also add that because of training for so many years and so many hours, that yeah, there, you see the guideline, but but you become more and more. I, the more prepared and the more you know your instrument or your craft, the more free you are to really be in the moment and create something special mm. in that moment. Mm. Mm. Dude, that's awesome. That that's <laughs> How's that's that a, for good. That's a quotable right there. You know, <laughs> that that no, that's that's amazing because preparation is. There's this whole concept of the ten thousand hour rule and right, yes. and stuff like that, which which I agree with and I also don't agree with. But like, but yes. In your case and what you're doing, you now have the freedom because of the hours and the experience to improvise. Like before, you can improvise for a very short period of time and it might go well. But the longer that improv- that improvisation 
gets extended without the commensurate experience, the, le- the more likely it's going to be that it will fall apart. Yeah, well, and also just to clarify, improvisation in terms of classical music is, I think people associate it with jazz where you have a chart and, and literally there are different notes coming out. But really for classical music, it's how you travel from note to note, how much slide you put in it, how much space you put in between each note, like from the end of the phrase to the next phrase, mm-hmm. kind of that suspension, mm-hmm. tension that's created before it resolves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a yeah. there's a bit of a distinction anyway that I No, I know I totally like I, I totally I totally agree. And I think it's an important note because that's what creates those moments where like you're pay- playing this like you're 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 playing a story. And there's going to be moments where people are on their edge of the seat because there's this really fast-paced thing. And then there's going to be, it'll suddenly switch to this long, slow, drawn-out narrative. And it draws people in further only to be taken on this next journey, which is which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And an incredibly powerful, I don't want to use the word weapon, but wand, if you will, to, to wave guide people through this story. It's really powerful. So you mentioned a moment ago that the music festival festival in New York was kind of a turning point for you. Yeah. And and I was going to ask you the moment that you knew that this was your calling, like that you fully came conscious that this is where what you were meant to do, what you were going to do, and where the music stopped being a page and became life. Well, if you were to ask my parents, <laughs> they would say, we knew it right from the get-go. You love jumping up on the mantle of the fireplace and performing anytime anybody came over. Um, but for me, really, it was my first summer. I was 16. Meadowmount is a very historical, classical. It's actually more of a music camp. It's very structured. It's it's uh, string players plus pianists that come together. They live in cabins. We each have our own room because we are assigned to five hours of individual practice a day on top of lessons, coachings, chamber music rehearsals, and then attending concerts in the evening. And this is way out in the countryside. Uh, So out in the sticks, really. So it, it it was the first time, right? So I'm 16, I'm still in high school. I'm going to Monta Vista here in town where no one else plays a stringed instrument. Mm -hmm. And then I go there and I'm surrounded by all these kids who absolutely love music, love to play with each other. And so it was just, I'm sure that deep down I knew sooner than that. But for some reason, being around those kids, I, I know for sure that that was the summer in which I, mm-hmm. I I knew this is what I have to do. How did it make you feel being around those kids? Oh, I I felt I felt at home, mm-hmm. and it was probably one of the first times. Actually, it was one of these <laughs> epic summers. You think of the old whatever flicks that you see, where it's like coming of age <laughs> films. Journeys, yeah, yeah. And for me, it was really that summer, age of sixteen, and and actually some of the friends that I made that summer. There was there was a group of nine Puerto Ricans actually that that came to the camp that summer of 1997, and um, 
I still remember I was the first to leave at the end. I think it was it's about eight weeks that we spend together. And they all came. We lined up. It was all the girls in my dorm. And then the Puerto Ricans came. And, and these guys were crying. And we were all crying and hug each, hugging each other. It was, yeah, it's mm. one of the best times of my you life. You still keep in touch with I do. Them? Almost all yeah. of them. Oh, and, well, that's cool. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of them have gone on to do really, well, all of them have gone on to do very awesome things. So earlier in our conversation, you talked about collaboration. And I was going to ask about the importance of community and the creative process, whether it's playing someone else's music or creating your own music. What what does community mean to you in that sense? In terms of the creative process? In terms of the creative process. Community is an essential part, I think, of fulfilling our purpose as an artist. I do not play for myself or my own pleasure alone. Mm -hmm. I want to share what I'm creating with others. Mm. And it's pointless if I can't do that. Mm. So whether it's performing for an audience or bringing another composition to life that was just written or being a part of making a project come to life in the prisons, <laughs> bringing music into the prisons. Any of that, I think, just without community, it's it's. I think it's a little pointless. Mm, mm. No, I totally agree with you. And the thing that I was thinking about as you were talking is I wonder if you can feel when the community of people that you're playing for are either A, not responding, or B, totally into it and what that does to your playing in oh. both scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. It The audience are very, very important part of the performance. And it, as you said, can affect the energy and what comes out, what is um, poured forth. I mean, if you had a, you know, they have we're going to have like computer robots that <laughs> take over the world. And maybe they would hear, oh, well, it sounded the same. But really, I think the intention, the heart, the soul, the passion behind the music when there is synergy and uh, an encouraging and good energy coming mm-hmm. from a community that's listening, I, I think that absolutely. And and also even amongst colleagues on stage. Mm-hmm. I I know many times musicians or or anyone in any workplace, you have to be a professional and make it happen, mm-hmm. even if you're not getting along with your colleagues. But I think it's great to strive for this positive camaraderie among your colleagues because the product and the outcome will be so much better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. 
Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. As you're talking, I'm thinking again about these different environments that you're playing in, whether it's a community environment out in a gazebo somewhere, you know, in a park, or, and we're going to talk about sound impact in a, in a little bit, or where you are playing in a, a, a juvenile hall type, a juvenile prison. Both of those environments are obviously different, and different environments call for different prescriptions and remedies. And so how do you decide what kind of music to play in one environment versus another? I, I, I don't really think about that. Actually, oh, interesting. I think the most important thing is no matter what, you give a thousand percent, and you it's the intention and the heart behind what you're doing. Mm. So, really, I think it's not so much I could play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or Old McDonald Had a Farm, but if but if I if I show if I'm, I allow myself to be vulnerable and and play with my heart. Mm. I really think that's that's all that I try to do with no matter what community I'm. Playing what does for. vulnerability mean to you as you're playing? How do you know? How do you know you're being totally vulnerable in that moment? Well, it's it's that it's a chal- It's a big challenge for I think classical musicians because. From birth, especially as string players and pianists, we, we're starting to study from such a young age where precision and perfectionism is part of what we, we have to do to execute. But I think vulnerability is letting go in the moment. So for me, actually, even through rehearsal, I will just be constantly nitpicking, analyzing everything I'm doing wrong. Mm -hmm. But as I get older, I'm more and more successful at as soon as the curtain rises and I'm about to perform for an audience, it's letting go of all of the negative self-talk or the doubt or anything. And you just say, I'm awesome. These people are awesome. And I'm just going to play with all my joy and and trust that the work has been done and I'm going to let go mm-hmm. and I'm just going to and and it makes me get really emotional in mm-hmm. the process mm-hmm. and I, so I think that does that answer mm-hmm. your question yeah yeah totally and there's this one of my previous guests on my show is this you know big big time like sales leader speaker person out of South Carolina one of the things he said a long time ago is people love the idea of competition, but when the gun goes off, it gets real. And you said it just differently. When the curtain rises, it's time to perform. Mm-hmm. And the only way that you can perform and be fully present is if you've done the preparation and the work first. Yeah. Because that way you can remain fully engaged and your your awareness, your attitude, and your mood can all be focused down into this one powerful moment that you're creating in partnership with whether it's four people or an orchestra of how many is in an orchestra? I mean, I don't know. I mean, like a hundred. Yeah. Uh, and then let alone the people on the stage, if you are 
you know, an orchestra and a ballet and or for an opera. I mean, they're responding to what you're playing. And then you, in partnership with them, are creating the story that the audience is responding to. It's an incredibly powerful position. And you talked about preparation. And you're getting ready. By the time this airs, the Santa Fe Opera will already have concluded, and you'll be back in, in, in sunny Santa Cruz. But you're preparing right now for this 10-week uh, circuit in, in Santa Fe, and you told me that you have to learn five operas. <laughs> I have no idea, like how. What's the process of that? How do you, how do you even begin to approach something like that? It seems like really daunting to me. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's. Uh, I mean, especially you know, it's such an honor. It's my second full time playing with this organization, and it's an incredible company. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. And so it really is just coming to the first rehearsal as prepared as possible. So I, the librarian, it gets to be that time. She'll say who would like PDFs or hard copies. So I have five, um, they, you know, kind of looks like a book of music for each of them. Uh, I'll kind of leaf through it and mark X's by things I think will be trickier that I should spend time. I go on YouTube is such a great resource for musicians these days. I mean, you can get recordings from eons ago up to the most current live performances. So I will listen uh, to those. I, I love finding. I'm I'm only now a recent listener to podcasts, mm. and so I, I will search for historical context of that the opera was written in. Mm. And so I, some musicians will do score study because obviously I only have the, my violin part. So I don't know how it fits in, in the way that I study most of the time um, with any kind of orchestral or opera situation is listening to recordings and mm -hmm. hearing how my part fits in. Um, but yeah. Well, um, you have to learn the whole entire opera though, yes, right? Yes, Which yes. Which is crazy. You got to learn everybody else's part. Yeah, well, you know, to a certain degree. Yeah, to a certain degree, it is nice that we have a person waving the baton on the on the stand, and he'll kind of pick apart in rehearsal mm. what we should be listening for, or if there's some intonation pitch problems. Um, mm. Yeah, but but overall, it's just making sure you know your part really well and how it fits into the context. Mm -hmm. And in that context, there is no real improvisation as you were describing early it's you're following the conductor's thing yeah. and when he says boom and it's it's end yeah, yeah absolutely yeah and also opera is distinct in that so much of it is we need to be very sensitive to the singing right so we we never want to overpower the singers because in in the context they are they should be the primary line mm -hmm. um, whenever a voice is singing mm -hmm. uh, and yeah is there a performance to date that you're most proud of or that brought you the most joy? I <laughs> I really don't mean to be cliche or not answering your question specifically, but I it's true. I feel so blessed with all the opportunities I've had. And I think more and more I value the feelings associated with the performances I do not in concert halls, honestly. Hmm. And playing in a refugee camp in Beirut, Lebanon last December is way up there. Mm. And what was that like? 
kind of an unknown. Like I, I didn't, I've never played in a refugee camp and didn't know much from the refugee side of it. And um, we had somebody escort us in and that contact was made through a filmmaker who had been and is, I think he's just wrapped filming, but he's still living over there. So because it could potentially be dangerous, it's you, you want to have someone from the inside, one of the refugees escort you in, ideally. And um, so the filmmaker said, meet me at this stadium. And so even that was strange because we're like, okay, how us, the musicians, we're going to just say this stadium, we don't speak the language and we'll just hope that they take us to the right stadium. <laughs> they ended up taking us to the wrong stadium. And then we're like there with no Wi-Fi. How do we communicate? Anyway, so it, it was quite an adventure. Mm. But when we finally got it, got to into the camp, Said Gawash, it was amazing. It was impromptu. The leader of the camp granted us permission, but nobody there living there knew that there was going to be a music concert. So we walked in and very narrow alleyways. We found a spot where there happened to be a few more light bulbs. And so we set up our stands and we started playing music and a crowd gathered. And um, after the performance, the filmmaker who's American, he said, in all of his one year working in the camps there, he had never seen the three nationalities represented in the camp standing together mm. in the same area. Mm. That camp has uh, Syrian, Palestinian, and Bangladeshi refugees. Wow. And and there's, you know, they don't, they kind of stick to themselves. So that, again, was the most powerful, literal image of of what music is capable of doing totally. in terms of unifying people. Yeah, and it's a perfect segue into sound impact. <laughs> and I love the, the word impact. And it's the right. you know, brace for impact <laughs> right. is, is my, the slogan of my show. I always say at the end of my introduction, bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. That's awesome. And the reason I, I say that is because there's when you encounter another person, there's only like one of four things that's possibly going to happen is one is that you're going to leave them worse off. Two is that you're going to leave them the same as they were when you've initially met them. You're going to leave them slightly better would be the third, or you're going to have such a profound impact on them through the, the communication, through how you relate to them, how you listen to them, that the entire trajectory of their life is going to change. And I know that you believe that music is an incredibly powerful tool and mechanism for change, and not only change, but that it can heal and unite. So I'd love to know at what point in your career, maybe it was that moment, that you realized music was more than notes on a page and could actually affect this kind of change and be a bridge between different nationalities and religions and <laughs> political ideologies, et cetera? I think from a very young age. Oh, really? My, my mom, she, as soon as I knew how to play a tune, she would take us into the nursing homes. And some of the less responsive folks, I remember seeing reactions. Sometimes negative reactions would come out. But I remember thinking, wow, 
that was one big draw for me was the power that I had I w- as I played music to prompt emotional response. And I mean, I went ever since I was five into the nursing homes. And then my mom really instilled an important value of giving back no matter what your gift is. And so our first benefit concert was when I was 13. My mom helped organize. My sister and I played duos together, violin duos. And it was to raise money for a blind girl who really wanted piano lessons from my mom. And because of medical bills, the family couldn't afford it. So we put on this benefit concert that ended up, she had a year's worth of lessons and a piano, uh, which was so, I mean, that was amazing feeling to to be able to accomplish that through music. Throughout my musical study, I... Well, and then, yeah, that takes me to another interesting story, which is all coming back to me. Go for it. I actually quit violin after undergrad for a year. No way. Yeah, and it's... I Like altogether? Yeah. Like no instruments? I, I just quit. Wow. Yeah, I had, you know, whatever, another part <laughs> of my coming of age. Yeah, yeah. I just got really overwhelmed by actually my own mind. Hmm. And so I just thought, I, 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 what am I doing I can't do this. So I took a break. I waited. Jeffrey Diner, I, I worked there. Yeah. I tried out a lot of different things. And again, I think I'm, I can credit my family for this. The importance of just being well-rounded. Don't become so narrowly focused on one thing. It's just, let's, let's take a look at the rest of the world and what mm-hmm. other people are going through. And actually, the thing that brought me back was volunteering to go to Ukraine and Romania with Connie Fortunato and Music Camp International. We went to, um, that was probably 2003. And it was so difficult because I was teaching group lessons to kids that did not speak English. And I hadn't taught that much. So it was exhausting, but it was so rewarding. And so that warmed me up back into music. And I made, I knew from that moment on, if I continue in music, I must keep this aspect of giving back very, very prominent mm-hmm. in what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's important for me as a human being and and is my obligation. So is that how Sound Impact was born? No, actually. So music in May was my baby. I created a chamber music, annual chamber music festival in Santa Cruz, where I grew up most of my life, uh, back in 2008. And a few of the years, we commissioned new pieces. And one of those pieces was for the fifth anniversary, inspired by the life of my mentor, David Arbin. Hmm. And that went was so emotional. And I told Danielle, one of the co-founders of Sound Impact, about this piece. And she said, let's produce some shows with that piece in DC. So Tiffany, the other, the third, there's three of us that co-founded, Tiffany Violist, she agreed to help out. And we played a series of concerts. David Arbin was present and actually a couple other Holocaust survivors as well. And the emotional impact that that had was 
when Sound Impact was born. Danielle, Tiffany, and I, after that experience, I mean, on the eve of the, or after those concerts occurred, said, we've got to keep doing projects like this, where it's not just the notes on the page, but things that elicit a very dramatic uh, response in both musicians on stage and also people attending. You know, it's been a journey, but we we want to use music in a positive way to impact as many communities as possible. So when you were playing the one with where David Arbin was there, yeah. and we're gonna I'm gonna ask in a minute for you to tell a little bit more about who David Arbin is. I read a little bit about him, mm-hmm. but what was the emotion that you felt and that you knew the audience also felt in that particular instant? Well, him being there, and he also composed a written narration, a very brief biography, if you will, that's read on stage in in the middle of the music, mm. in silence. Mm. So there's a little musical intro. You know, and he's there. We also displayed a video of when he returned to Warsaw in 1997, and it was the first time he recited the Kaddish, which is the prayer for the dead. And mm. though he's not religious, uh, it's the eldest son, I think, that's supposed to read. And I, I apologize if I'm getting the tradition incorrectly, but he was the only one in his family to survive the Holocaust. Uh, he attributes the violin to saving his life as well as his parents instilling in him that he is amazing and just loving him and and just the belief in himself, giving him that was, he attributes to his survival. But seeing that video of him reciting the Kaddish, hearing his words spoken from stage, then this music, which definitely Paulina, who wrote the music, it's such a striking uh, depiction of the horrors that he went through with credit card scrapes across the piano strings and, and this incredible uh, crying sound in the clarinet, which, uh, you know, a lot of people associate with Jewish music. And and then this, she took a very familiar uh, melody that cantors sing in synagogues and put it into a violin line. I mean, it's just so, mm-hmm. yeah, the mo- you just imagine the emotions. I mean, we all were like crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I, I can, I'm even, I'm getting some of that emotion just even in watching your body language, too bad we're not videoing this because you could see the emotion in in you describing the sound. And I'd love for you to elaborate on who David Arbin was because he recently passed away and, and how important he was in your life and how you guys met. So remember back Meadowmount where I met those Puerto Ricans? Mm-hmm. Well, they told me about a annual 
government-funded music camp in Puerto Rico. And I thought, fantastic. I'll get to see you guys, make more music together. So I spent quite a few summers there, and that's where I met Mr. Arben. He was, there's a group of Philadelphia-based musicians, including himself, that would come down during that period and conduct and teach the musicians, young musicians. It was like Youth Orchestra of the Americas. And he coached the violins, and i that's where I first met him, this incredible, incredibly dapper old man, just pressed, um, sure, you know, just you, you think of old film and you, people just don't dress, take care to dress themselves like that anymore. But he always just looked so elegant and had a cigar. And I, I was always impressed with how he pushed in a very gentle but firm way that produced a much better sound out of the strings. Mm-hmm. So he and I connected and and I wrote him a thank you card and it he still remains one of the only people to write me back. So that started our correspondence and then and then soon after that I went to Juilliard and I I would sneak away every so often and spend the afternoon with him. He would tell me stories about life and so more than just coaching me with different musical pieces I was studying he would teach me about life and share these incredible stories. He grew up in Warsaw and the war started when he was 13. So that was the last time he saw his parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, and then his baby sister and older brother. And so they all were murdered except for him. And he, the violence saved his life. And he when he was nine, so prior to the war starting, his father took him to a performance of the Warsaw Philharmonic. And he saw Ephraim Zimbalist perform Beethoven's Violin Concerto. And he said it was the most amazing music making he'd ever heard as a nine-year-old. And the people were on their feet applauding for 30 minutes. Everyone was like shaking with this amazing energy and excitement. And he said he was too afraid to share with his father that moment, but he thought, I must study with that man. That man was the head of Curtis Institute, no, Curtis Institute of Music. Wait, is that what it's called? Anyway, Curtis in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, he, he made his way there even after the war. He had some stops along the way. He was in Munich for a while. Uh, people wanted to help him with whatever he wanted, and he he wanted to do everything on his own. He didn't want to be helped or owe anyone anything. But he ended up getting to Ephraim Zimbalist, playing for him, being accepted into his studio. He went on to uh, retiring as associate concertmaster of Philadelphia Orchestra, soloing with them 27 times. And yeah, just an incredible human being. And he passed on his musical knowledge and life knowledge to so many students. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the mm. fortunate few. Yeah. When you say the violin saved his life, do you mean like he actually played in the concentration camps or he did? Like it, or he, did? he did. He did. Oh, wow. So, well, for the first, if I'm correct, I believe it, it was a f- couple years 
that all he did was hard labor and he didn't touch the violin. And then there was a leader in the camp and he asked him, you know, do you have any other talents? What what can you do? What what can we use you for? And he said, just as his parents called him, he didn't think any, he says, I'm a violin virtuoso. You know, and that's, you know, that's a, it's most of the time it's, it's uh, what do you could reserved for a very amazing player. But you know, this little kid, that's what, that's what the parents called yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really, again, it's, he attributes his uh, surviving also to their making him feel like he, he is the greatest and all of their children. So, um, from that point, he he would sometimes play for the Nazis, whatever, whining and dining the women. And there was one morning where it was a call to, I think it was 6 a.m., and they separated them into two groups, and one was the young, sick, and the old. So it was looking not so good if you go into that selection. And he went that way. Mm-hmm. So he recounted that the feeling knowing that you're about to be killed he said you you could have taken an axe to his arm and he probably would not have felt it because he was already dead he just thought mm. i am going to die and they let him out into the woods i think it was a group of 105 of them and graves were dug for them and they were just about to be shot when that leader who had asked him, do you have any other, what else can we use you for? And he said, he, he said, wait. And he, he took Mr. Arbin out of the group of 105 and said, we cannot, you cannot kill him. He is a violent virtuoso. We need him. And moments later, the 104 oh were shot gosh. to death. So that's just one instance where it literally saved his life. Did he feel, did he communicate like that? He felt any guilt? After that, that you know, I never asked him that. I, I, it's got to. I mean, I'm sure that that came out in his playing. I, I would yeah. imagine that that his whole life, you would be able to confirm, like his whole life, the way he played, had, that all that emotion had to be communicated through that violin. Yes, my favorite quote, which I've used a lot, is, "Music is life. Music is hope. Music is peace. I cannot mm-hmm. ask for more." Mm-hmm. Is what he said, and and. Know if you know any part of his story, then you know how significant that mm. quote is. Sounds like a movie needs to be made on his life. Yes, my mom already has picked out the actor that will play Mr. Harvin. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Daniel Craig. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my sweet mother. Um, yeah, it'd be cool. That's, is he going to turn into some like Nazi killer? Uh, you know, Dan- oh. Daniel Craig, super, uh, you know, James Bond type character, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, no, but I honestly, I mean, it sounds like it, it, what an incredible story. What, if you had to pick one lesson or something that he inspired you to believe, what would it be? I mean, he, he has made such a huge uh, impact on my life. And I, I'm still processing that he's no longer on this planet. I know he will continue to impact my life forever. I mean, if I had to choose something right now, he really, really loved life. 
And I think that is something I'm not sure not having gone through what he went through. I really will love it as much as he loved it. But I think just appreciating what you do have rather than, I don't know, longing for this or that or whatever. It's just just really the fact if you're alive, you're lucky. Mm-hmm. And, and to really take advantage of life mm. and freedom. Mm-hmm. He loved and appreciated everything that was brought, you know, that was provided to him coming to the U.S. Mm. He was, yeah, a lot of wonderful things to Powerful. say. Powerful. Yeah. Powerful. You know, Rebecca, this has been a lot of fun. I want to really appreciate you because I know that you're not necessarily used to being interviewed. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you've provided, without even knowing it, a tremendous amount of wisdom and insight that I think people will be able to to take and apply to their life, whether they are an entrepreneur, an aspiring musician, or just somebody who's working out in their yard in terms of practice and perfection and humility and cooperation and story, how important story is in the musical process. And so before we ask these kind of last few rapid fire, fun, lighter questions, uh, I'd love to give you the opportunity to point people to where they can find more about you and Sound Impact and all your other cool stuff online. Yeah, sure. I I have the three nonprofit arts groups that I've been a big part of making happen are my music festival, musicinmay.org. And Sound Impact is soundimpact.org. Yeah, Ensemble San Francisco is another chamber group that I do a lot of work with that's very similar to Sound Impact um, in the Bay Area here. Mm. So yeah, EnsembleSF.org or com. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. We'll link to all of that in the show notes and be sure to share all of that out. But I actually just remembered one question I did want to ask you earlier, which is if you could pick any stage to perform on, what would it be? Like a dream stage. A dream stage. Like yeah. literally the stage? Like Or like any place. Like what would be your dream audience or dream where you would be like, oh my gosh, I'm performing here? Or, mm. you know? Well, there's the, the heartfelt answer, which honestly playing in the hallway, alleyway at Saeed Gawash Refugee Camp, that was an amazing quote-unquote stage to play on. But just for sheer fun, I... It, it it was mind bending <laughs> to perform at Madison Square Garden. Oh wow! At the Latin Grammys, and you know I'm on stage playing in the part of the band that was backing up this very popular Mexican pop group, but feeling the energy of I think it was like eleven thousand people screaming like lunatic fans. That was unreal. Wow. Oh, and I, I also played Barbara Streisand. That was the most amazing oh, wow. opportunity. She, because she really, because of her stage fright and, mem- you know, when she forgot a few lines or something, she went into hiding and didn't really perform. I played on her 90th live performance period, which was, I can't remember the year now, but that, that was extraordinary as well. Wow. What yeah. was the, what was so extraordinary about it? Well, first of all, She's older, and the elegance, she looked and sounded amazing. Mm. 
so mad respect and just was so impressed. And again, her her lovely fan, the energy I felt from the crowd who has not had the opportunity to hear her live mm. very much, period, through mm. her lifetime mm. was really special. Mm, that's awesome. If you could pick, these are the more fun questions now. If you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Definitely not reading people's minds. (laughs) (laughs) So you currently possess the ability to read people's minds? (laughs) Well, wait, hang on. So wait, a skill skill you currently currently possess possess. and turn it into a superpower. Like, can you give me an example? Like some people say, you know, reading body language or some people say uh, persistence or some people say um, focus. And turning that into into a superpower. Like How? so leveling it up even further. Oh. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, let me see here. I don't know. Patience. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think I have quite a bit of patience, but yeah. to have even more, why not? Yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. I mean that's I mean, honestly, that's a that's a really impressive answer. <laughs> no, I because I, 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 I would never have thought of patience myself. And frankly, I have four kids, so I Sometimes that's it can be amazing. short on patience. Uh, but that's a very interesting answer. I think especially musically speaking or mm-hmm. in life, we're constantly right. on, like we're trying to rush stuff. Exactly. No, and I, I think there's some things that have happened in my life more recently that have made me realize that the more patience I have, and the more I allow space and time, that mm. I think it can lead to much greater things. What are three lies that you believe artists or entrepreneurs or creative types tell themselves that prevent them from fully realizing who they are? Mm. Lies. Well, I think one lie is definitely sometimes wondering what is is what i'm doing does it really matter is it really is it really doing anything mm. and i remember being in haiti and i went to an orphanage and there were these five sweet girls one of the staff members revealed to me after i'd been playing with them they all were born with aids mm. And I remember my heart just fell deeper than I ever have felt it fall. And it was, it's kind of funny, it, it, that lie really got into my head for a while. Because I just thought, how can music be doing anything to help them? them? Yeah, I mean, hmm. so, but I think, again, I really think that's a lie. I think there there are so many beautiful things going on and we all hopefully do the best that we can. And I love when Ellen DeGeneres says, be kind to one another at the end of her show. I, I think just kindness mm-hmm. is huge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so not not believing what you're doing is making a difference. Mm. I think that's a terrible lie. Mm. Yeah. I'm 
sorry. No, <laughs> these I, are supposed, real... these are supposed to be lighthearted questions. Know, yeah. Well, they're they're yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> leave it no, to me to bring it no, bring gravity to yeah, question. No, I, I love it. No, no, actually, I mean some people are some people give there's no like time length on this thing. Some people give really long answers, some people give short answers. You know, I had like a an, a guy that yesterday that answered the boom, 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 you know, oh, and we moved right. on, you know. Yeah. But that's a really powerful example. Like the Basically, the imposter syndrome, you know, like I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm, Why mm-hmm. should anybody listen to me? You know, I, I battle that. Mm-hmm. I think everybody that's aspiring to greatness in any way mm-hmm. battles that lie on a daily basis, and you got to slay it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Was that was that the number I, one? Or you, okay, I think I, can, I think we can leave it there. I think we can leave that there. <laughs> okay. What's one thing? This is the last question. What's one thing you want listeners? to take away from our conversation today. Life is amazing. It's beautiful. There's so much that lies ahead and so much possibility mm. that lies ahead and and just be in the moment and buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Ooh, Rebecca, thank you so much. That was a perfect way to conclude our conversation. This was so much fun, very powerful very rich, rich, deep undertones of, 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 of life and story throughout our conversation. And I'm very grateful for you spending time with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Rebecca Jackson, thank you for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show and for being the start to our Creative Mindset series. Such a tremendous gift to have you on the show and to hear more about your story and your journey and all that you are doing with sound impact and bringing David's story to the screen, hopefully, so the world can learn more about his incredible journey and the impact that it's had on you and thousands of other people. In case you missed any of the points and highlights of my conversation with Rebecca, we have got you covered as always at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 87 for the key points and highlights. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lawton Marketing Group and the podcast masters. We could not do this show without them. Now, until next time, go make an impact.